KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. As I was just saying before we got started, when our guest, Nanachka Khan, was last here, she was just a TV creator, executive producer, and now she's got a feature career ahead of her, and behind her, and ahead of her, I should say. She's in the midst of it. She's done Always Be My Maybe, and her newest film is Totally Killer, a title that tells you more than you think in so many ways. Nacha, so good to have you back. Thank you for doing this. Elvis, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And just watching this movie, I can see why you gravitate to the script. It's got a bunch of characters who are all appetite. Uh, it's about people who are trapped in that world between being teenagers and adults, literally in this case. And that one character for whom common sense is a curse rather than a superpower. It's, <laughs> it's so much you, but you tell me what it was about this material that made you want to do it. I mean, that's it. You know, it's always for me, you know, um, the characters, uh, especially like the central sort of storyline, the character of Jamie, you know, in, in Totally Killer, who's played by Kiernan Shipka, to me was was so fascinating and so interesting and something that I wanted to follow and see. And then, you know, combining that sort of character stuff with uh, the high concept of, you know, a serial killer and time travel just all sort of clicked for me and I, it was it was exciting because it was it felt fresh but it felt like something that I knew how to handle you know it felt fresh and familiar I guess in the same in the same uh, <laughs> breath <laughs> I mean, we should say that the material just since you sort of alluded to it and, and talking about it the high concept of it is it's if you were to intercept Friday the 13th forgive me Halloween, literally Halloween and Back to the Future uh, with a young woman in the lead. This is the movie you get. and But there's so much that's, that feels to me like you again. There's that really that one character who is almost doomed to see like the logic and the common sense behind everything. And, and all the other characters are so delusional in such <laughs> outsized ways. <laughs> Which I love. I just love that. And you were right with Friday the 13th, too, because there is that slasher element. That's an accurate reference. Yeah. And I just love to, you know, characters that just understand what's going on and just don't don't understand, you know, why nobody else sees it. But just the idea of being like dialed in and accepting this crazy thing. I don't understand. Am I the only one? Like that, that to me is a funny point of view. I feel like there's always been high stakes in, in the stuff you've done in the past, but it's never been life or death before, mm-hmm. or with the exception of American Dad, I guess. But I just wondered that was something that you kind of always wanted to do, too, create a comedy situation where the stakes are this high. Yeah, I mean, you know, because in comedy, like, only to the people who work in comedy, it feels like a tightrope walk whenever you're doing it, you know, because, <laughs> like, you feel... <laughs> You feel the life and death of it all, but nobody else does. You're like, oh man, I hope this joke lands or I hope they like this or whatever it is. And so to actually be able to manifest that into a true movie and story was really satisfying. And, and the idea of kind of going back and forth between like real jeopardy, life and death, the consequences, as you say, and 
and the humor of it all, because I, I like the idea of like uh, multiple things existing at once, because it feels like life to me, even though this is such a heightened concept, but it feels like, you know, you're not just one thing all the time. And I like that idea of, of the combo platter. And your lead in Karen Shipka, she really does know how to play drama and melodrama and comedy at the same time. It was actually happening too with Always Be My Maybe. You need somebody to play things really big and really down to earth simultaneously. You had that with Ali Wong uh, there, and you got that with her here, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think in both cases, you know, with with both actors and and both roles, like if you don't have that central person feeling connected, even in the in the craziest of circumstances, whether it's a rom com or it's time travel, you know, serial killer, if, if they're not playing it grounded then I think everything else runs the risk of feeling untethered. And I think I think it was so crucial to have actors like Ali and Kiernan that can pull that off, you know, and make you feel connected and care about this character and lean in and root for them. Uh, yeah, even in the in the wildest of circumstances. But also these people who can comment on what's happening in real time and not take us out of the story. That's a really hard thing to do, too. Definitely, because you you don't want them to, you know, get meta with it, right? Like, you don't want them to wink at the audience, like, you know what I mean? Like, that idea, sometimes I think some characters can create, like, walls between the character and the audience. And I think it's important, at least in the things that I'm involved in, to just have, to just have nothing in between that space, right? If that makes sense. So it's like, they can comment on what's going on in a way that doesn't feel like they're winking to the audience, like, hey, I'm in on the joke with you, it isn't this crazy, but rather in a way that feels like they're in the scene and it feels realistic to what any of us would do in that scene. You know, like, what would you actually do if this was happening? You know, just that idea of them kind of just having, like, a realistic point of view is is something that was really important. I would say, though, that's actually the case with a lot of the the young actors in the film. And what is interesting about this to me, and I would ask if it was in the script, is the movie's playing around with a lot of the the tensions that are created whenever we see young women or people of color or young women of color in these movies, that they're doomed to be chattel, that they're doomed to be plowed under. And both the horror and the comedy of that is really fascinating. And there's so many in this, which is not something we see in the movies that this movie is parodying, but also taking seriously. I mean, those movies generally are pretty doggone white, and this one is not. It's important to, number one, just cast the best performers, and that's what I always look to do. And for me, it it just shakes out that way. Like, I think there's so many talented, in this movie specifically, young performers, young female performers of color that are so all of the things like they're so realistic. They're so grounded, but they're so funny. They're scream Queens. They play the melodrama, you know, they play all of these things and they make it look effortless. And I think in the slasher genre, you know, kind of stereotypically that main central young woman character has always been like, you're saying like sort of like fodder, right? Like they're, she's being chased. She's being hunted And I think what was compelling about this is like, yes, there is that element and there's a killer that's hunting, but the main character is the one that is driving everything. Like she is hunting this killer in her own way, you know? And I think even subtly that subconsciously that change for me, you know, she's not just sort of cowering in a closet waiting, but she's, she's 
literally traveling through time again trying to not spoil anything but to to stop this thing and i think that that sort of agency is something that i really gravitate towards and and you know i'm excited to introduce into uh, a new space it's the treatment we're talking about making it look effortless with my guest director Nanachika Khan. Her new film is director is totally killer, which is on Amazon. By the way, you can also hear the show at KCRW.com slash the treatment. Well, it's something that you do so often and, and it really comes into play here. But I say also and uh, always be my maybe, it's casting as as your lead figure, somebody who's kind of a narrator who's incredulous most of the time what's going on around them <laughs> and and getting somebody who can do that again you're asking it's, it's such a big demand but it's 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 so often the case you you build your stories around somebody who's kind of the storyteller who can't understand why these things are happening around them i guess i would ask if that sort of attracted you again to this material but also where that comes from for you i think i'm attracted to the idea of people questioning things as they're going through it, you know? I mean, sometimes you leap in to certain sections of a story with sort of, you know, blind faith and just like set pieces or whatever, you just jump in and, and close your eyes. But I think for the most part, <laughs> from a traditional story sense, like I like a character who stops for every so often and it's like, is this happening? Like, I can't understand, like, are you seeing this? Like there's some... There's something that I relate to, I think, just even as a as a viewer when I see things like that. And and, you know, again, not not winking at the audience, but sort of verbalizing almost like what the audience is feeling in that moment of like, could I do this? Like, what if this was happening? I, I think that's something that I keep coming back to always. And I ask myself, like, what would I do if this was happening? And and if I do and if the scenario is something that's just outrageous, it's like if I'm in this, then I'm in it. Like if I if I have to be in, you know, the I'm in it hundred percent. But let me just make sure that this is what I'm going to do before I do it. You know, that kind of thing. I think there's there's something comedic about that to me. But there, there is something about all of these stories that you, you tend to be attracted to uh, that are kind of fable-like. And it really hit me in watching this, Wizard of Oz, but that could apply to many of the things you've done. And that makes me wonder if that was something you saw at some point that really landed for you and kind of made its way into your conscious or subconscious i mean you know what's gonna sound very strange and i, I honestly have not, not thought about that until just now and you making these connections and talking about wizard of oz i do think this is gonna sound so strange but i do think it is like the love of musicals when i was a kid my dad loved old movie musicals and like we never went to the theater or anything like that we didn't have any money and whatever and never lived in a place that had like a thriving theater community or anything but but he would wake me up at night to watch old musicals with him. And, you know, like Guys and Dolls and West Side Story and, you know, My Fair Lady and things like that. And I think that there's a fantasy element to those stories, even though I've never done a musical uh, yet, I guess, uh, now that I'm <laughs> making this connection. But, you know, cabaret, like all of the, you know, everything. And it's like, I, I think there is a fantasy to those stories where, uh, you know, you can kind of jump out of reality and then jump back in. And maybe that's it. I don't know. There, There is that that fable-like quality in, in movie musicals that I really enjoy and always have. And, and maybe that has something to do with it. I don't really know. No, because as you were saying this, it reminded me that one of the things I think we all connect with in musicals is that moment just before people burst in the song where everything is heightened and anything seems possible. 
in yeah. a weird way, the set pieces in this movie, but the set pieces and always be or maybe or any number of things you've done have that kind of quality of things feeling really heightened as something is about to happen. You know, it's that transition moment between, you know, characters sitting in a coffee shop talking and then anything happening, right? Like Keanu Reeves walking in or a time travel device or a serial killer or, you know, whatever it may be. There is that thing of like anything is possible here as long as we set it up right. And, you know, I think that some people who don't love musicals, I think that's what they don't like about it. It's like they feel like, oh, now suddenly everybody's bursting into song and it doesn't feel real or whatever. But I think to me, the possibility that anything could happen at any moment was was is really exciting, you know, and that that is an element that I enjoy doing in, in whatever I work on. See, there's always something to talk about with the director of Totally Killer Hanachi. We're going to take a break. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. I'm too excited. I have to jump back into this conversation with Nanachi Khan. Her new film as director, before she turns to the musical, is Totally Killer on Amazon. It's The Treatment, which you can also at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. That moment of expectation and, and that moment of want, without giving too much away, there are set pieces in here in which things are heightened. And this physical staging, I mean... I don't want to say musical numbers, but they're certainly built around physical action and and uh, sort of this sort of dreamlike thing that's happening. In fact, it's a dreamlike see, thing that's happening every time one of these 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 acts of violence occurs, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the dark side of dreams is, is nightmares, right? And so I think what was really exciting about Totally Killer and the first time I got to explore this space was working with a stunt team, you know, and working with the actors and the stunt coordinators, our stunt coordinator, Simon Burnett is amazing. And really sort of choreographing, as you say, like it's not a music, you know, it's not a dance, but it is, you know, it's, it's a movement and it's, it's a way to express what's happening. And here it, it takes the form of a, a kind of a nightmare because it's a lot of dark stuff going on and, and there is a killer on the loose, but you know, it is fantastical in the same way. And the trick about all of this stuff is always to make it feel natural, but choreographed at the same time, you know? So like you work really hard to make it feel like you're not working at all. Again, without giving too much away, there's a sequence that to me almost feels like a climactic sequence at a house that involves two different floors and a tumble. That's a really incredibly staged sequence because it's not only a really suspenseful horror sequence, but it's also really funny. I mean, it involves the adult perception due to drugs and what we understand to be really bad drugs from the 80s, which is another <laughs> funny thing too. But there's so much going on in that sequence. And it feels to me that's where you really stepped up as a director because that's a really demanding piece. I think unlike a lot of the other, let's not say the others aren't too, but there's a really a lot going on in that. And also mm -hmm. we have to know where we are in that house and where Jamie is in the house too for the horror stuff to work. That's a really almost like a breathtaking piece. That whole cabin set piece from start to finish is exactly, you know, leading up to that sequence that you're talking about with the staircase, because it's as soon as they arrive and, you know, there's a lot of comedy to it. And as you say, there's there's bad 80s weed that comes into play, that, <laughs> you know, that Jamie, you know, this Gen Z person from 2023 is like, what? This is like dirt and twigs. Like what on earth? But, you know, when you're in the 80s, everybody else feels it. But it's all 
leading towards understanding where you are, the geography of the cabin and the surrounding area and outside and inside and sort of where everybody is at any given moment, leading all to this, you know, sequence where the killer arrives. And I'm so happy that it played for you because like that is something that I'm very proud of. And I think that, you know, a lot of, again, pieces went into you watching that moment and, and, you know, not necessarily thinking about what's come in the movie 10 minutes earlier or whatever, but rather being in that moment because we did our jobs 10 minutes earlier, you know? And I think that that was really satisfying to sort of build that whole sequence together with everybody. Well, there's also that possibility of escape that exists in here. That's really sort of essential to movies, to slasher films, but you can, you've got, comedy and horror going on in the same thing at the same time, but you can't emphasize one over the other. It just felt like a, a tremendous balancing act, a real emotional and physical piece of choreography, Nanachka. It is that sort of fine line that you're walking and you don't want to tip the scales and it's all about tone. You know, every everything that everybody does is always about tone. You know, you're trying to build a world, establish a world. You know, in a movie, you do it in, in an hour and a half or two hours. And you're trying to make the audience feel like this, this is where you're going to be for the next, you know, hour and 40 minutes or whatever it is, and, and never sort of waver off that. And if something is possible in this world, then you should know about it and you should, that should not throw you, you know, so it's, it's like that fine line of comedy, horror, escape, you know, getting caught, like everything is just kind of, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air. And I think, um, you know, it was challenging and ultimately, you know, what drew me to something like this, because I like that. I like that challenge. I have to say, too, that we're talking about the the young actors in the film and there are moments with Kieran Shipka and, and Olivia Holt that are just astonishing. You realize you're watching two movie stars in this film just because part of it is just one character, again, sort of her compass is always kind of pointed toward Magnetic North and she knows where she is. And the other is a kid. I mean, there's probably mm-hmm. the, the, the physically the same age, but one is just so bent by appetite, which is a you kind of thing. You always have a character who's like that. And it's just watching the, the interplay, but also this character who is not malicious. We think she is initially, but she's not. But that pursuit of instant gratification is a dangerous thing. And there's great stuff going on in those scenes with the two of them. I think the two of them, Kiernan and Olivia, just crushed it like every time they're in a scene together you just can't look away and I think you're absolutely right in that characterization these are two movie stars and they're both so dialed in to where their character is in the moment in the story you know Kiernan obviously has a secret right in every scene she plays from Olivia like even though you know she is telling her like I'm from the future whatever Kiernan knows so much more than Olivia knows there's stuff that she's keeping from her and Olivia is just playing it so purely from, you know, being 16, 17 years old in 1987 and just wanting to like hook up with the cute boy, kind of like not liking this girl who showed up as like weird girl. And there's so much comedy in that, but there's so much like emotion because when you, the audience is with Kiernan in a lot of ways, because they know what Kiernan is here to do and they know what happens to Olivia again without, I mean, I feel like that maybe even (laughs) tipping it a little too much, but it's like, you know, (laughs) there's, there's a lot at play in those scenes. And I think those two actresses just brought so much complexity and so much humor and so much heart to it. So, you know, at the end of the day, like the Trojan horse emotional core of this is a mother daughter story. And there's so much 
fun and, and, you know, big scares and thrills and, you know, fight sequences and, and time travel and everything. But really it's that that's the beating heart of, of the story. And I think without those two, you know, it, it doesn't work and they, they just really pulled it off. It's weird to use the phrase delicacy of tone. <laughs> if we're talking about <laughs> a horror slasher, sci-fi parody film, <laughs> but there is that. And what you're talking about, I mean, just sort of keeping the scales balanced and, and each scene sort of offers up another piece of information again, and once we get that information, it offers another side of these characters. And so while Jamie has secrets, there are secrets that this world has from her, or rather truths that she doesn't have access to that magnify things. It is funny to talk about the, the delicate balance of tone in, in a big sort of high concept movie like this. But again, like those two things coexisting to me is really appealing. And, you know, I, I enjoy things like that, that I see. And I, I like the idea. You're right. I mean, there's a difference between like withholding information and keeping secrets. Uh, having blind spots is another thing that I also enjoy, you know, like knowing the information <laughs> <laughs> and then just refusing to see it, you know, be like, what are you talking about? I mean, that's also very funny to me and an interesting character trait. And, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's just satisfying that, that it's coming together in this way. And it's just, it's a fun ride, you know, and, and, and hopefully it's, it's one that you kind of like lean in for and, and really like are rooting for these characters. It's the treatment. We're back to talking blind spots with director Nanatska Khan. Uh, her new <laughs> film as director is Totally Killer, which is on Amazon. You can also hear the show at KCRW.com slash the treatment. We can't talk without talking about, in fact, at one point I was almost going to say, if Randall Park's in it, you know that Nachikon's probably nearby. <laughs> and your relationship with him goes back a ways, but you guys have worked together quite a bit. In fact, when he was here, he was talking about how instrumental you were in helping him get his film realized as, as director. And I, I want to talk to you about what it is that he brings to you, because you ask something different of him every time you use him. He's like a Swiss army knife. You know, it's like, you can't, it's like, I ask for a corkscrew. There's a corkscrew. I ask for the little knife. There's a little knife. Like I ask for the nail file. There's a nail file. So, I mean, I only ask because he delivers every single time. And I think I'm so happy you brought up his movie that he directed shortcomings. Um, I just thought he did such a brilliant job with that. And it was such a lovely movie. He's so talented. He hasn't even, he's done so much and there's so much more that he's, he's going to do. And I'm, so proud to, you know, work with him every single time. And, and, you know, I would work with him forever if, if, if he would allow it, you know, I'm, I honestly am a huge fan of his. It's evident that you know how to get the best out of him. And it's funny just having him in this as spice when he shows up, you expect so much and he does deliver. And again, he's playing a character who, because so often he plays characters with a kind of a misguided intelligence that there's none of that here. <laughs> we we invest in this character and also because he's playing an authority figure and he's a person of color playing an authority figure in an 80s movie. It's like, again, there's so much going on just when we see him that that expectation becomes a kind of a comic tension, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because, you know, you're used to a certain, as you say, like a certain thing that Randall does so well. And then in this movie, he's playing all of the things that you mentioned. And he's also what appealed to me, too, is that he's kind of a jerk. Like, he's kind of being a jerk to her the whole time. Like, he's kind of a 
And that's funny too, coming from Randall because he's so likable and he's so sweet and fun and and self-effacing. And then he meets, you know, in this in this movie, he's like smoke, chain smoking, doesn't care what she has to say, dismissive, and really embracing that kind of throwback to the chief of police in a small town that you normally <laughs> see in you know these movies like this. It's just like does not care what this girl has to say, is not interested in anything that she's bringing to the table, and it's just you know just sort of dismissing her out of hand is is a funny color for Randall Park. It's it's so fun to watch. But there's so much texturally that interests me about this movie, Donachka. And and as I was saying we, in the first half when we were talking about this, casting so many people of color, but without trying to make a big deal about it or without making an announcement about it. Because in the 80s movies, as well as movies that parodied them in the 21st century, whenever there's somebody of a different race, there's an underline or an italic around that to sort of make a comic point. And for you, it's all just kind of laying out this foundation. Again, it's just all textural stuff that really makes this a much richer and more vibrant world. I think so, too. I think, you know, without calling attention to it, letting these characters just inhabit this world, to me, serviced this story because trying to sort of put an underline on something or trying again to sort of nudge the audience about any element of that would have upset that sort of that delicate balance that we were talking about and like, you know, toppled the apple cart in a way because the way these people coexist in the movie is something that the audience just buys into. And that's something that I, is important to me. You know, it's not, emphasizing one over the other is just saying this is the world this is the world that jamie comes into here are the players and that's what it looks like you know and i think i'm proud of that you know i I like that i think even too i mean hiring this group of mean girls who call themselves the mollies because they model themselves at the molly ringwald and only one of them is white and that sort of speaks to the impact that those movies had, even given that those John Hughes movies depicted an ostentatiously white world, which you sort of make fun of by having your character wearing this white French jacket throughout. So we know that that's evident that she's a white exactly. person in a white jacket. Um, but just having that, that to me speaks to understanding as a person of color yourself, the impact that these movies had. And it wasn't just stuff that, that white kids consumed. That's right. I mean, you know, back in the 80s when all of our entertainment was sort of streamlined, right? Like we didn't have a ton of options. Like the movies that were big at the box office, like we all went to go see John Hughes movies. Like, yes, I guess there were some fringe, like independent sort of, you know, art house. But when you were a kid, you consumed what everybody consumed. And when you didn't look like everybody else, you know, when you weren't a white kid in suburban Chicago or, you know, wherever most of the John Hughes movies played, like you just put yourself in there anyway. You know, like you just imagined yourself friends with these kids going to the school and whatever, you know, whatever the story was, because that was what you saw. And so now making a movie, you know, in 2023, uh, you know, getting a chance to direct a movie like this, I just put those kids in there, you know, instead of a kid in the audience imagining themselves in this school, let's just put these kids in the school. And and that's, that's how I saw it. That's how kids, other kids of color, I know, uh, growing up saw it. And now we can just make it so. Well, 
it's one of the things that makes this movie so satisfying. We're talking about the film Totally Killer with this director, Nanatska Khan, and we're out of time. I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. Of course. This is truly a pleasure, and I always love talking to you, and I, I love having conversations uh, about everything with you because you're so dialed in, and you have such great insight, and I'm so happy you enjoyed the movie. The horror time travel comedy, Totally Killer, was directed by Nanacha Khan, who spoke with us. It streams on Prime Video. Mixes and remixes at kcrw.com slash the treatment. More of today's mixes to come. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest, Grant Singer, and his feature film debut as director and co-writer, Reptile, brings the sensibility of deliberation as chaos is going on around. You've seen this music video work. First of all, it changed my mind about Skrillex, so that's another conversation. <laughs> but anyway, um, I want to talk to you about that because you mastered at an early age the really slow dolly move and what that means to have it dollying on somebody who's the gravitational center of a crazy world around them. Where does that come from for you? First and foremost, I would say that I'm a student of film. And I love um, very classical moves. Like, I love a beautiful pan. I love a beautiful tilt. Well, so many people in your generation are more prone to handheld than to having a camera on the ground. There's something that you learned early on that that gives a kind of ballast that we're not used to seeing, in, especially in contemporary music video. I think I've always, for some reason, responded to the, the stillness of film, how grounded it can be, how, can, how restrained it can be. And there's something striking in a still image, both photographically and in a cinematic sense too. And I've always, I think, responded to, to filmmakers, whether it be, you know, through in movies or in music videos, where there's real composure. There is a classicism in the way that you work, isn't there? I would actually describe myself as very old-fashioned. If you think about the movies that have influenced me most deeply in my life, I'd say most are from the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. What are some of those films, Grant? Certainly a movie like Night of the Hunter, In Cold Blood. Rosemary's Baby, 
Wild Strawberries, Shoe Shine. I mean, these are movies I've been thinking about recently, also after finishing the movie. So funny is Wild Strawberries is really about the kind of morality that's happening in Reptile, isn't it? In some ways, yeah. And I, I haven't thought about that in relationship to Reptile, but that movie in particular has always um, resonated with me because it does something that you can only do in movies, which is experiencing your life as a voyeur, right? Our, the protagonist is able to experience his past, you know, in, a, in the hidden sense. And then also the, the way that um, Bergman captures the inner life of the character, both through the dream state and through these very poignant moments, I just find so breathtaking and harrowing. It's interesting, too, because you said that I was thinking about the way characters enter and leave in Wild Strawberries. And that happens a lot in this movie. You introduce the people who then disappear for a while. So what's cool about Wild Strawberries is the film is very unpredictable. I've always loved stories where you don't know where the filmmaker is taking you. You're just along for the journey. And I know with Reptile, certainly what we wanted to do in the script stage was to make something that... Well, first of all, the film begins with these two characters. You experience a day in the life of... Uh, in fact, it could be from scenes from a marriage. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I love the passing of the baton, right? Because 10 or 15 minutes into Reptile, we change protagonists and Benicio becomes our protagonist. And then hopefully as the film unfolds and unravels, the viewer's understanding of whatever they saw in the first 10 minutes will hopefully change. I like that misdirection. I like... I like not knowing where the story is leading you. But also there's a sense in all the movies you were describing of moments that feel like they're vignette, but in fact are moving the story forward. And strictly speaking, that's not happening in Wild Strawberries, but there's an emotional kind of storytelling that's happening there that's being moved forward. Certainly the plot all ties together by the end of Reptile, but there's also, we're seeing Tom's emotional story play out too. And we get a chance to see that he's not this hail fellow well-met guy that we we imagine or that he presents himself as we should say not saying imagine he's sort of saying that and even the way he talks to his his wife publicly depicts that kind of character they're very different people when they're not around other folks and and that's i thought really interesting too that this there's so many sort of guises that that people assume in in the movie aren't there yes and working with an actor like benicio it's such a gift to work with someone with that much talent and passion and weight, you know. In, in, and unpredictability. And unpredictability. And I think we realized very soon once he was involved that his inner life as a character was going to be very important in exploring. And certainly in the second half of the film, um, something happens halfway through the film. And then in the second half, we really access his inner world as his world sort of unravels and History repeats itself. And we should say he's one of your co-writers on the film. So, yeah, so um, Ben and I wrote the script, and we set up with our producers who had done Sicario with him. And he read the script. We had him in mind. He responded to it. And once I met with him and we hit it off, he said, all right, let's go. And we started working and developing the script together, and it evolved. And But I will say that one of the things I was trying to do with this movie was with thrillers and crime thrillers in general they can be a little austere, they can be cold, they can feel sinister. And if you have two hours of that, it can be a little bit overwhelming. And I but wanted- But this movie is austere. It, it is, but it's, it's I think sinister. it's also playful. I think it's, there's a lot of levity. I mean- I, I don't want to give too much away, but <laughs> one of my favorite moments is what feels like a search for evidence on a laptop. <laughs> something. Well, to me, because, so what we're trying to do, to, to the listeners who haven't seen the film yet, we've all seen the detective 
thriller who's obsessed with the case and they can't sleep, they can't eat. It's their entire life. And what we're doing with Benicio's characters, we're showing him in a, in a more multifaceted sense where he is just like you and I, he's got the same weaknesses, desires, and he likes nice kitchens. And it, it, it makes this character more relatable, more human, I think more interesting. I think the, the, the tonally all-encompassing thing that we're talking about is something that I've always been inspired by. And I felt like, you know, perhaps exploring that would be unique to this movie. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. My guest who's smiling a little bit too much is Grant Singer, the director and co-writer of Reptile, which is on Netflix. It's interesting that, to me, Grant, that this is something you worked on with an actor, because I can see there's a lot of the writing that gives actors something to play. It's all that sort of classic, almost actor's exercise thing is what you're doing in the scene, in some ways, has nothing to do with who these people are. Their goals are, are, are really subtle and, and, and contradictory to what's happening in the scene. So much of filmmaking to me is subconscious. It's all intuitive. I approach... Really? I approach directing through feeling an emotion entirely. Is that what so much of your work feels so dreamy? Well, that's interesting that you say that because film to me is dream. Film is a way to experience the lives or a life outside your own, which is almost dream logic. And my favorite films... I think if you, if you really looked at them and what they might have in common, they all feel like a dream. And by the way, not to say that like, I love Cassavetes or Cine Lumet, and, and those are filmmakers who, who I actually wouldn't say that their f movies feel like dreams, but, but Faces is a film that changed my life. But many of Cine Lumet's movies have changed my life. But movies like, for example, Lost Highway, which is a movie that very much changed my life. And when I think about it, it really does feel like a dream. Or movies like Vertigo, or you were just talking about Wild Strawberries, that movie feels completely like a dream. Mirror by Tarkovsky. These are moments in my life that I can tell you, for whatever reason, these movies changed my life. And, I, and I, I've thought about recently, after having finished this movie and re-watching films that have resonated with me throughout however many years, and re-watching them, I'm, I noticed, wow, they, these are all somewhat dreamlike. I was thinking, I don't want to give too much away. There are two sort of big moments that happen with a gunshot. We actually don't see all that violence isn't on screen. I mean, it's really interesting because we realize these in these moments, a lot of that's like left to our imagination and like the very climactic thing at the very end. And then there's a, a pursuit that becomes this this corkscrew that really sort of like turns things topsy-turvy. But those are moments a lot of the violence is kind of off screen because we're aware of the tension in, in these spaces. And I was thinking there's a moment that precedes those where Michael Pitt's character is, is about to be interrogated. And it's a really long, chilling moment. We don't know what's going to happen where the camera's fixed but, and somebody's peering in, which feels actually very sort of Kubricky and Hitchcockian and somebody peering in to watch this thing. There's violence in those scenes just from the tension. Yeah, so I've always been interested in more of a cerebral sense of fear as opposed to an explicit one. I don't love seeing very gruesome, violent things. I'm very sensitive. In fact, I, I'm, I'm extremely sensitive. So do you know what you made a movie about? The last word I expect to hear from you, I shouldn't say sensitive, but sensitive to that kind of outbreak of things is surprising to me. I'm more interested in the feeling of dread, this sort of unnerving sense of suspension and tension. There's a sequence in the film where Justin Timberlake is leading a couple through the house, and it's pure anticipation, right? Because um, 
we know that uh, one of the things we realize in the movie is that there's a description, a very particular physical description of the suspect. And we see in the scene that one of the people that Justin is giving a house, giving Falls it to a house, that, has that, that, that thing. Physical description, and yes. you're very worried for him in this moment. And one of the things we also do in that sequence that we do throughout the whole movie, which is portray the hunter as the hunted. You see it done so beautifully in Coppola's The Conversation. It's a, it's a device that I know in the writing stage we all it's love. It's also Serpicom. You're talking Serpico. about It's yes. definitely that. Absolutely. And that's another device that we play with in, in this sequence in particular. I mean, one of the things that we do throughout the movie, you know, I've been having to rewatch it more recently throughout these screenings. And, oh, sure. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, there's so many clues, so many things that we're doing within each scene. It's very dense. It's very rich. It's it's. I think it is the movie that is intended to watch two, three times. The sequence you're talking about gets what I was saying at the beginning, where we think we know one thing about somebody, and then it turns out we don't know. I mean, it's, that's, that thing we thought we knew is completely upended. So one of the things I was trying to do with this with this film is evoke the feeling of being deceived. It's this multifaceted sense of deception, both in the storytelling, like kind of what you're saying structurally, but also in the experiences of the characters. We get to experience Benicio's character be deceived quite a bit, specifically in the last half of the film. And that feeling of deception through storytelling is something that I find very exciting. The idea of sort of flipping expectation, thwarting expectation, or offering an expectation and then paying it off in a very different way is something that goes back. Again, I could like sit here and name like so many things you, you shot. And I want to ask you, too, if part of the fun of making this movie is really taking your time because there's the illusion because the camera moves are so slow in the music videos that you're taking your time. And in a lot of ways you are, but still it's a compressed form. I mean, you really take you guys take your time with this. I mean, it's 25 minutes before we have a real sense of who the center of the film is. <laughs> That's a great point. You know. With music videos, your job is to create a spectacle. You, if, if the song is very big, the video should feel like it matches that. It should become a cultural moment where you... Well, a lot of what you do is almost a parody of that, that perception of, of, of spectacle. Absolutely. And I think with this film in particular, I was rebelling against that. Like, my favorite shots in the film are these very still... They, they look almost like there's no lighting. They're these um, interior shots... The first five minutes of the film is like like that. There's almost no lighting, and and it's, it's almost chiaroscuro. You almost wonder if it's going to be in color. In fact, the, for the first ten minutes of the movie, we were not sure what period is taking place in. That was something that we were trying to go for, which is both a placelessness and a timelessness. And by the way, the film is set in this town called Scarborough, but we never explicitly articulate what state it is, and the, and it's purposeful for money reasons. One, because we don't want this to feel location specific. It's just evoking a sense of Americana. But also, with a lot of movies that I love, they feel like they can be any time. You know, like a, another movie I love is In the Bedroom by Todd Field, which is a movie I've seen many, many times, and you just... And really takes its time. Oh, it's really so, takes, its takes its time. It's so beautiful and deals with grief and revenge and just so many... And the repercussions of violence. And the repercussions of violence. And it's so poetic. And that movie, In the Bedroom... Oftentimes when I'm wanting to watch that movie, aside from Tom Wilkinson's brilliant performance and Sissy Spacek's brilliant performance, it's to be transported to Maine in that specific area, that specific time. And it, there's, a, there's a timelessness to the quality of the landscape, to the, the texture of the film, to the music, to the feeling. With this film, we talked about it earlier that 
what movies can do that's very unique to movies is you get to experience a life outside your own for the first time, right? We're, we're very inhibited through our experiences as people in our, in our bodies, but movies can, can transport you to these other worlds. And I was trying to evoke this very serene Americana that would be a beautiful counterpoint to the evil and the violence and maybe the, the cerebral horror that you experience in the movie so that these bad things could take place in this very beautiful place. Talk to me about the first time you met with Benicia, because he's a very interesting outsized presence. But will you talk to me before you guys start? You have a lot of outsized presence in this movie. You've got Justin Timberlake. You've got Frances Fisher. You've got Alicia Silverstone. You've got Eric Bogosian. I mean, it's, it's crazy, the number of Michael Pitt, the number of people who have these sort of outsized presences. I mean, it, it's really, again, it almost in some ways feels like a 70s movie with that kind of cast of people who kind of go, wait, what's going to happen when you put these people together? So talk about getting Benicio and meeting him. So that first meeting, uh, Ben and I wrote the script and we, we gave it to our producers who had worked with Benicio and he responded Did to Did you it. know him before then? No, no, never met him. And he read the script. Obviously, we had him in mind for the role and felt like, well, maybe we could get him the script because of our producers. He read it, responded to it. Uh, wanted to meet with me, and the day before, I got an email. It was supposed to just be like a coffee, the two of us. I got an email saying that his manager, uh, Rick Yorn, and his agent, Jack Wiggum, wanted to come to the meeting as well to meet me, kind of like see, oh, first-time director, who's this guy? So my uh, my producer, Molly Smith, and uh, and Thad Luckenbill, Trent was out of town, um, came to the meeting as well. But it was at Rick's conference room, and... Benicia's sitting down. It's like this huge conference room, super intimidating. And I walk in, he shakes my hand and immediately goes, why is it called Reptile? And I say, because each character is introduced as one thing and revealed to be something else. And then it was well, two. Well, I mean, there's a, a reptile artifact that we see. Yes, yes. <laughs> there's, a the lot of, there's a lot of yeah, metaphors. And it was two hours of rapid fire questions uh, about my vision, different things about the story. And I think it was less about the film and more so as a test. Like when you're an actor, you're really in the hands of the director and you want to make sure that you're in good hands. And it was about the movie, but I think it was also him trying to gauge who I was as a person. And he's obviously had so many experience with filmmakers. He's looking for certain things or wary of certain things or whatever. And after two hours of this meeting, and I think it's going well and I could just feel that there was a chemistry between us that we were finishing each other's sentences and he was into it and i was into it and he said all right we'll get to work i remember thinking to myself oh my god is benicio del toro in my movie right now like i mean it was this moment of this is incredible you know you go to film school you work your whole life you want to be a filmmaker and then but to get in the room with someone like that is 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 a real dream come true and then let alone for them to, to do the movie with you is a, is a whole other dream come true but to have those experiences just to meet with someone like that is is a is a real feat we're out of time but the movie reptile is on netflix it's director and co-writer and very easy guy to talk to grant singer is here grant thank you so much for doing this thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it The director and co-writer of Reptile, Grant Singer. It's now on Netflix. An unusual treat from the mind of Oscar winner Sir Ben Kingsley is next. Past treats, equally unique, at kcrw.com slash the treat.
bad guy win every once in a while When they go round in circles When they fly high like a bird up in the sky I'm Elvis Mitchell. From Oscar winner Sir Ben Kingsley, It's the Treat. It's about paying attention to the currents that run through life. And a note, it was recorded before the SAG after strike. Oh, this is the treat. And I'm Ben Kingsley. And we were talking earlier about circles in life. Some people call them coincidence. I think they're patterns. There may be even patterns that are set by something that I can't name. Others might attempt to name it. I can't. But I had occasion to explore uh, certain journeys and paths and they were, they were all linked by what could be called a coincidence. I've decided halfway through this not to be specific and not to mention the incident because it's very private to one or two individuals, so I won't. But what I will say is that I had occasion to, to share something with, for want of a better word, the universe, and the very person to whom it was directed, somehow through a chain of coincidence, heard it and responded. It's quite extraordinary. It's happened all my life. I mean, there's huge circles all my life. Circles and circles and circles, always meeting. Sometimes we, we have a thought or a recurring theme in our heads is probably connected to something we have to do or somebody we have to meet. That's all I can say. Listen to the signals. You might say, oh, isn't that strange? Or isn't that coincidence? No, it's not. All I'm saying is, no, it's not. I don't think I'm unique. I think it's happening all the time. Just take time to listen. Put certain things down, put certain things away, Switch certain things off. I'm not talking about meditation, not with a, even with a capital M or a small M, none of that hocus pocus. Just when you have these, these little nudges, little pokes, little thoughts that start to add up, just trust them, work on them. I think there are signals that we can be sensitive to and we can act upon them in good faith, and they will pay off. The Treat from Sir Ben Kingsley. Previous treats, such as Jason Siegel on a unique force in his life at kcrw.com slash the treat. The Power of Inspiration, the Impact of a Time That Gave New Meaning to Life from an Array of Creative Minds, that's the treat. And that's our show. Produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilcrest. And help came from Anabas and Laura Kandarajan. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment.
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.